Welcome to Mind, Body, Spirit, Food. I'm your host, Nikki Sizemore, and in this podcast, we'll explore the rituals, traditions, and cultural influences around food and how they connect us to our minds, our bodies, our spirits, the earth, and our communities. This is a space that's dedicated to bringing more presence, ease, and joy into the process of feeding ourselves. Let's dive in. Hello, and welcome back to the show. Today, I speak with Hetty McKinnon all about bringing excitement and flavor to winter vegetables. This is a really good one. Hetty is a Chinese-Australian cook and food writer. She's a James Beard Foundation finalist and is the author of five best-selling cookbooks, including her latest, Tender Heart, which I am completely obsessed with. She's also the editor and publisher of the food journal Peddler and is a regular contributor to New York Times Cooking, The Washington Post, Bon Appetit, Epicurious, and more. I love Hetty's work so much because it is just imbued with story and authenticity. Hetty describes how, for her, cooking is a channel to connection. It connects her to her family, to her Cantonese and Australian heritage, to the people she cooks and writes for, and also to those she's lost. She describes how food is a channel for remembering her father, who passed away when she was 15, and how she brings aspects of him onto the plate. We also talk about winter vegetables. And listen, I know that winter vegetables can seem tough or unruly to cook or even drab and boring, but Hetty is here to prove otherwise. She shares recipe ideas and cooking tips for making winter vegetables so utterly delicious. I mean, we're talking turnips, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, broccoli, If you think you know these vegetables, then think again. And just a warning, I think you're going to walk away hungry from this episode. (laughs) I also think you're going to be so inspired to get into the kitchen. As always, if this episode resonates with you, please take a minute to rate it on your podcast app and share it with your friends. You can also subscribe to the Mind, Body, Spirit Food newsletter where I share weekly recipes, tips, and I dive deeper into some of these topics. For just $5 a month, you can become a paid subscriber that gives you access to the full recipe archive, other fun perks, and you fund this ad-free space. And I'm so grateful for you. All right, my friends, let's dive in. Welcome, Hetty. It is such a joy to meet you and to have you on the show. Hi, Nikki. It's a delight to be here with you. I'm going to start by asking you the first question that I ask all of my guests so that we can get to know you a little bit. What is your cultural background and how has that influenced your relationship to food? My cultural background is a huge part of who I am and the way I approach my career in food. So I am Chinese. Most of my parents are from south of China. They immigrated to Australia when my mum was in her early 20s. My dad, a little bit younger. They met and got married there. And then I was born in Sydney. So I grew up in a very traditional household, very, very traditionally Cantonese. We spoke Cantonese at home. We only ate Cantonese food. And it was a really huge part of our home life. But as soon as I left my front door, I had to be somebody else. You know, growing Mm. up in Sydney in the 80s, I mean, it was a multicultural school that I went to, but around us on our street, there were like three or four other Chinese families and we were all related. (laughs) 
<laughs> they were like, my aunt lived next door and my grandma lived on the corner. And it was still like a very, it's a very different time to the way it is now in, in that my mum still lives in that same house. So, I mean, I grew up just being surrounded by food. My mum just mm. cooked all day long, really. Mm. And I didn't really understand why she was doing it or why food, why always cooking. Like to me, to be honest, when I was young, it was a bit of an annoyance, like Mm. just always like so much food. Like she would start the day with like a big breakfast. And often it was different things for the three of us. I've got two siblings, I'm the youngest. And she would just be always like tailoring, you know, food to make us happy. And yeah, to me, I was like, I remember when I was younger, I would just prefer a bowl of cereal because we mm. never got to eat things like that or mm-hmm. toast. Even if it was toast, it was something like, you know, out of the ordinary, like, you know, there would be like char seal with cheese and scallions or something <laughs> like, not like what all my friends at school were eating. So it was just a, a huge part of my life. And it wasn't until I I mean, really quite recently in the grand scheme of my lifetime mm. that I've come to understand what food meant to her, what food means to immigrants in general mm. when they go to a new place. Food is connection. Food is a way for them to stay connected with their homelands. And, you know, food is a way for them to express themselves, mm. to express their love for their family, but just to express their creativity for some people that don't have other avenues. Like I grew up in a really different way to my mom, but my mom like came to Australia. She, you know, had to stop school when she was quite young, like when she was in her probably early teens, I think 13 or 14, she told me. Hmm. And then her life was targeted and molded around getting out of China. And so it was a long route to get out of China and to go to a place where the family felt safe. So she missed out on education Mm. and a chance to explore who she is. So food became her way of exploring who she was when she came to Australia. So, you know, I've written a lot about this over the last few years because, you know, I guess it allows me to understand who she is and where my family comes from and who I am as a result of all of that. It's so fascinating that you said cooking for your mother is or was and probably still is her creative expression as well as her connection. And for me in my own life, while I am not an immigrant, it serves that focus for me as well. Cooking is my creative outlet. It's my artistry. Mm. I tend to think of that and how much tighter I think I would hold on to that had I been uprooted and moved somewhere else where I felt maybe a little bit lost. I think that makes so much sense. And it's fascinating that now your work, let's explore that a little bit. You kind of resisted this a little bit as a kid. Mm. How did you come about to maybe embracing the foods that you grew up with or also writing about food, making food your career? I mean, honestly, Nikki, this is not what I envisioned for myself. Maybe even if you said 15 years ago, this all came about really by accident. We lived in London for a little while, my husband and I, and we had my first child there, my daughter. And then we moved back home because I really felt a calling to being closer to my mom, like since I had children and I, I just wanted help and I just wanted her present around me. And so going back to Sydney, I had two more kids. And then after that, after the birth of my third child, I thought, actually, I don't really want to go back to what I used to do, which was in PR, working in an office, 
long late nights. And I thought we lived in Sydney and lived in this beautiful neighborhood. And it's like, I want to do something that keeps me rooted to my community. And really out of no, there was no business plan. There was not really even that much thought, actually. No precedent was really set for me. I basically thought, well, I love cooking. I love making salads. I love making, you know, like really tasty vegetarian food. So why don't I make that and like share it with the community and I put it in boxes. So I started like Mm. this salad delivery business without much forethought. But during that business, you know, there was just so many personal things these kind of, I guess, personal epiphanies that happened for me. Mm. Firstly, my mum came and kind of cooked alongside me unofficially. Mm. I walked from my home kitchen. So my mum came on the pretense of babysitting my youngest, who was about one at the time. And when she'd come over, she would come into the kitchen, she would chop vegetables, she would wash vegetables. And in that time, we would just talk like Mm. as equals. And I don't think we'd ever had that opportunity before, you know, like particularly like the years that I really remember, the years after my father passed away when I was 15. And there was always this element of me where I felt like I needed to look after her and probably Mm. the same from her too. But like there was a real kind of vulnerability, I think. But I think after I had kids and we were cooking together in the kitchen, like I felt like we were equals in a way, Mm. like we were both doing something and I'd obviously learned a lot from her in, in what I was doing. I didn't realize actually how much I'd learned from her until I was actually cooking a lot. And this was in about 2011. And so I started this journey with these salad boxes and my mum was there with me and she would be recommending like ingredients to use and mm. perhaps use seaweed, perhaps use lotus root. Like these are very like traditional ingredients that I grew up eating, but in a really new application. So that's to me, like where a lot of the way I cook now comes Mm. from was those times cooking with her for the salad business. But then the other thing that happened when I was Arthur Street Kitchen, which is what the project was called, was this discovery of how food can connect people, Mm. strangers, neighbors, how food is this kind of great equalizer, how it brings people into your life and how it creates these connections that go very deep, that run very deep, that are beyond who we are and where we grew up. You know, like it's over a box of salad. I made great friendships. I discovered and learned a lot about people, about humanity, about human nature, about relationships. And it was an amazing experience for me. And so that feeling of connection remains the focal point of mm. everything I do, every project I've ever worked on, every recipe I develop, there is some sort of connection that I'm reaching for. You know, obviously that connection varies depending on what it's for. Like if it's editorial for a major newspaper, you can't be so personal, but I'm still drawing from something that I've lived. Mm-hmm. My lived experiences in every recipe I've written in every book that I've written in every kind of word that kind of comes out of me I'm always bringing it back to that point of connection yes you know it's so interesting before we hopped on and started recording you and I were talking about 
authenticity and how important that is for both of us within our work and within mm-hmm. your recipes and within your cookbooks, that is so apparent, that connection. I have a fascination with connection and food, and I believe food can connect us to ourselves and to something deeper in addition to connecting us to those around us. When you mentioned cooking with vegetables, where did that passion for vegetables come from? Are you vegetarian? I know that all of your recipes are. And when did that start? And how does that relate to your own aesthetic, your own Mm -hmm. creative expression? So I am a vegetarian. I've been a vegetarian for a very long time since I was a teenager. And it's a life that I led without really thinking about it. I became a vegetarian a few years after my dad passed away. And my dad worked at the markets. He worked in fresh produce. And so we grew up surrounded by fresh vegetables, fruits and vegetables that were the freshest that you could really think of and probably still some of the best produce I've ever eaten. And I didn't really think about that either at the time, but eating vegetables was something that was just quite normal to us and Mm -hmm. eating large quantities of it. So becoming a vegetarian felt very natural for me when I was a teenager. And I guess when I started cooking, vegetables naturally worked their way into my cooking narrative as the main character. You know, they were my inspiration, my muse for everything I came up with. It would start with a vegetable. And how can I build this out into a story? Every recipe felt like a story to me. Where is this taking me? What part of my lived experiences am I bringing? Which place that I've traveled? Which person that I've met? Which conversation that I've had? So vegetables really have always been at the center of All of that since I've been cooking professionally, really since my salad business. And I really didn't understand where that passion came from until I actually was working on Tenderheart, which is my latest book. And it didn't start off as the book that it ended up being. It Mm. started out as purely, I want to write about vegetables because they're light and they're fun and they're this Mm. and that. And then it ended up being an exploration of loss and grief and using vegetables as a way, as a channel to remember my father who had passed away when I was 15. And for most of my adult life, I've been too afraid to really tap into those memories, to really Mm. allow myself to think about him because it still hurt. And it was really actually very hard for me to really think about him because I felt like my memories weren't valid because I was Mm. so young when he died. So vegetables gave me a different way of thinking about him in a really joyous way to think about all the the life Mm. that he lived rather than what Mm. subsequently happened. So, you know, I'm deeply grateful for the experience of being able to write that book, to be able to write it the way I did Mm -hmm. and to be able to find my father again in that book. Yeah, it's a really meaningful book for me. It is a very meaningful book for everyone who picks it up. I can tell you that firsthand. And it does allow us, it grants readers the opportunity to look at grief and its connection to food in a very safe, beautiful, and joyous way. And those things might not sound like Mm. they match up, but they absolutely do. And it's so beautiful. And I want to get into the recipes. We're going to talk about winter vegetables, but I do want to read one quote from the book. 
you say, in life and death, food is a source of immeasurable comfort. It is a symbol of care for the life lost and a balm for the soul that lives on. And for those of us who survive and thrive, food is a legacy, a way to stay connected to loved ones, past and present. This resonates so much, especially right now. We're heading into the holiday season. And I think of my own relationship with my grandmother and how so many of the dishes this time of year, only this time of year, directly connect me to her. Even just the smell of the roast in the oven that my mom now makes, it brings me right back to my grandmother's kitchen. Are there any dishes that do that for you and your father? Any specific dishes? There are a few things. My dad didn't really cook. Obviously, my mom was the main cook in the family. He's the one that brought home the produce and she would go forth and create. <laughs> but there is, there is one dish that my dad would always make when my mom was sick and, you know, she'd have a cold or something. She wasn't able to cook. And it was a very rare occasion, but he would always make salmon scrambled eggs. So it'd be mm. like scrambled eggs with tinned salmon. And I remember when I would smell that coming from the kitchen around dinner time, I would be going, oh, mum must be sick. She can't mm-hmm. cook tonight. So that's one dish. And so in tender heart, obviously I don't eat salmon anymore. So I've made a seaweed scramble that is a homage to that memory, even though it doesn't taste exactly the same. But there are things like my dad, and I write about this in the introduction of the book a little bit. My dad really was... I see him as the person that introduced me to a lot of the Western foods that I now Mm -hmm. love, like cheese. Mm -hmm. My mom never bought those foods and didn't really understand them herself. So when I wanted to try things, my dad would be the person who would bring home cheese if I asked. I remember my sister at one point, she liked orange juice. So he would, every day he'd bring home a whole carton of orange juice. (laughs) He was one of those people. And then after school snack, was like an official meal in our house. Mm. And my dad would look after that as his job. But it was not food that he really cooked. It would be like meat pies. I mean, this is Australia, so Mm -hmm. it would be like meat pies and sausage rolls and like apple turnovers, like from the local bakery. So those memories are really very nostalgic to me, even though they're not something that I eat every day. When I go back to Sydney, I'll go, that bakery is actually still there in Mm -hmm. my old neighborhood. So I'll go there and, you know, kind of get custard tarts and these types of foods that are very Western Mm -hmm. for me, but they're very much associated with this sense of discovery that I have when Mm -hmm. I think of my dad. Like he brought so much into our home that was so different to what my mum brought. But I feel like in my food, there is that melting pot of those two influences. And I think that's why it's so important to me. The the way I cook is not traditional in any sense. It's not traditional to my mum or my dad, but it's traditional to who I am and, and my experience of having those two influences or growing up with those two influences. Hi there. I just wanted to pop in really quickly and let you know that an easy way that you can support this work is to sign up for the Mind, Body, Spirit, Food newsletter. In the weekly newsletter, you'll get brand new recipes each week along with my thoughts, ideas, and practical tips for how to bring more ease and joy and freedom into the kitchen. The newsletter is free, although if you become a paid subscriber for just a couple bucks a month, 
You'll have access to the full recipe archive, along with Q&As, weekly threads, and other fun perks. And if you're already a subscriber, thank you. You can share the newsletter with your friends or even give a gift subscription. I've popped a link into the show notes where you can sign up. Thank you all for listening. And now back to the show. Your food is very adventurous and generous. And those are two words that when I was reading about your father in the book, he sounds like he was a very adventurous and generous human. And it's interesting how those things just come out in your recipes. Speaking of which, I would love to start (laughs) to talk about some winter produce. So we are in December heading into the holiday season, but winter vegetables, I think, can be very intimidating at best because they are tough. You know, they take a little bit of coaxing, but I think people also might have this idea that they are boring or drab. (laughs) Mm. We're talking, you know, the root vegetables, the cruciferous vegetables. So I thought it would be fun to go through a few of these and get some of your advice and tips for bringing out the best of some of these Mm -hmm. vegetables. Some of which, I mean, I would love to start with turnips, actually, because I think turnips are way underrated. You have a whole chapter devoted. And (laughs) I mean, I think I was talking to a friend the other day and she's like, she literally has never cooked a turnip in her life. She's like, why would I cook turnips? (laughs) Isn't that funny? Yeah. I've I've Mm -hmm. heard that a lot. And yeah. I think a big part of Tenderheart is I wanted to present vegetables in a different way. I wanted people to see vegetables through the point of view of a person that didn't grow up, like just with Western influences, you know, like turnips are something that my mum would cook a lot. I used to actually cook them for the salad business Mm. and people loved turnips and it was a very popular vegetable. So I thought, you know what, as with most things, it's just about cooking them properly. And they make sense in so many ways because they're economical. I mean, Mm. I don't know about everywhere in America, but in my local supermarket, which is not a fancy supermarket, it always has turnips. And obviously, if you can get the really nice Japanese ones from the farmer's market, even better because they're so sweet and you can eat them raw. But if you can only get the supermarket ones, I mean, they're just so delicious. Mm. So in the turnip chapter, there's a Spanish tortilla, which I've replaced potatoes with the turnips, a great way of using oh, up what a great lots idea. of turnips in an application and a recipe that a lot of people will be familiar with. So that yeah. flavor and that way of cooking is going to feel like not too scary for a home yeah. cook if you've ever made a potato tortilla before, but you're giving a different profile. It's a little bit mustardy. The texture is not as starchy and it just gives you a different appreciation of a turnip. And actually one of my favorite recipes in the entire book is the miso glazed Mm -hmm. turnips with -hmm. the black rice. Yes. And I think I'd say in the introduction, if you don't think you like turnip, that is the recipe to try. That one will turn you because it's so like the miso glaze is very intense and sticky, but it complements that slight kind of bitterness of the turnip so well. And it's very hearty without feeling like, you know, sometimes, I mean, I love potatoes, don't get me wrong. Like I love the potato chapter, but sometimes after you eat potatoes, you feel, you know, like you've had a carb load, <laughs> and which is sometimes often what I'm looking for. Right. But turnips are a little bit less, you know, of that feeling. So it's a great recipe. I really recommend that. If anyone is new to turnips, yeah. go for the miso glazed 
I love miso with turnips too. And you're right. There's something about that umami saltiness of the miso and then that slight like spice of the turnips. It pairs so well. And then you get the sweetness that kind of balances everything out. I'm working on a recipe myself that's a miso maple glaze for turnips. And it's what got my eight-year-old to love turnips. I mean, she doesn't eat them and other applications, but she will eat those happily. So I love that. that. And I do want to mention, just because for those of you who are able to buy turnips as bunches, turnip greens are also delicious and you can cook them just like you do other greens. So I just want to throw that out there. Exactly. And there's actually a recipe in the turnip chapter, which uses a whole bunch of turnips. Mm. So you use the actual turnips, the actual bulbs in with pasta, and then you use some of the greens to make pesto. And then you use some of the other greens to have as greens in the pasta dish. So it's a really fun way of taking one bunch of a vegetable and saying, what can I make with this one bunch? You know, and all the different textures. Who would think to put turnips in pasta? I love that idea. I can't wait to try that one. (laughs) I haven't tried that one. (laughs) Maybe your eight-year-old will like that one too. Yeah, I have no doubt. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's move on to cabbage, because that's another one I think for a lot of Americans, we kind of get stuck in like, okay, there's coleslaw. Roasted cabbage is trending right now. But what are some other ways that you use cabbage? I love cabbage. I developed a great reliance on cabbage during COVID, actually. Mm. I've always liked it, but I saw the light with cabbage during COVID. I saw like truly how versatile it is as a vegetable and how far it can go. I mean, I love that. Like people think that you know, you spend so much money on vegetables, but one cabbage can get you, you know, several meals if you yeah. if you've got a big one. But during COVID, I started doing wedges of cabbage, which I would sear in a pan to get lots of color and char, and then I would braise it. Mm. And so I do that double application because obviously you probably know this, but for readers who don't, you know, like vegetables. Think about vegetables as you do with meat or any sort of other protein. When you have charring, when you have color, it means flavor. That's what color is. So you char it to get that nice bit of caramelization flavor. And then I've braised it. And in the book, I've braised it in like a tomato coconut sauce Mm -hmm. with lentils. That itself, that's a main meal. Mm. You don't need to eat it. If anything, I guess you could have some bread to mop up the sauce if you wanted or serve it with rice. But to me, that is such a filling and yeah. satisfying winter meal. There's also a like a carbonara-ish mm-hmm. um, where I've used cabbage as the base of a carbonara. And I know everyone's going to think, oh, no, that sounds like awful appropriation. <laughs> but it's an ish. You know, it's, it's not ish. carbonara because yeah. it doesn't have any of the traditional ingredients. But I've taken that technique. And it's lovely and incredibly satisfying. I think that with this book in particular, and I think I've said this to friends and people asking, you know, about vegetables and cooking vegetables in the winter. I say, you know, this book is great in the spring and the summer, but it really comes into its own in the winter because Mm. there's a lot of braises and bakes Mm. and just really interesting ways of using 
root vegetables, for example. Vegetables that people say, oh, I'm so sick of it. I can't eat any more sweet potato. Right. You never eat like a normal sweet potato in this book. Well, and that's it. People might think a book about vegetables and their minds go to salad. And it's like, that's not where this book goes. I mean, there are some salads, but like it's really each recipe is its own special dish. They all feel like they are a composed dish as opposed to just like something that, you know, throw on the side because you need something on something else on the plate. Absolutely. I mean, vegetables are always main meal for me. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm always because that's what I eat. I mean, because I'm an actual vegetarian, I need that meal to satisfy. Yeah. yeah. That's my meal. I'm not eating something else after it. So yeah. it's got to have that level of heartiness, the texture, like satisfaction, like lots of satisfying textures, layers of flavor. Like people often ask me, like, why do you develop recipes the way you develop? And I think that could be one of the reasons mm. because I'm vegetarian and I'm, I'm coming from it what I need for myself. Yes. Which is a lot of flavor, a lot of texture, feeling satisfied with food. So it's one shot, you know, and I've got to make it really good because that's my meal. But yeah, definitely all those things are so important, particularly in the winter to keep food really interesting. Like one of my favorite recipes in the sweet potato chapter is the sweet potato rendang, which is Mm. an Indonesian slash Malaysian dry curry with coconut. And so it's such a different way of eating sweet potato. I mean, obviously, rendang is usually made with beef, but I've used chunks of sweet potato with a very authentic spice paste. And it's got from the coconut, it's got all this texture. There's lemongrass in there. So there's all these warming textures and flavors with sweet potato. So, you know, there's no reason to be bored with sweet potato. No. And so many, you know, the I love cooking vegetables as well. They're my favorite thing to cook because like Mm -hmm. you, flavor and texture, as my listeners and my readers know, that's what excites me about food. And there's vegetables just give that to us. Mm -hmm. With a meat, you know, (laughs) it's not so easy. I think two things. Vegetables give us that diversity in flavor and texture, but also from a creative artistic side, you know, as a kid, Mm. I was the artist of the family. The vegetables are just visually so fun to play with and so fun to work with because of the color and because of the shapes and all of that. And we don't get that with meat and fish. So no, not really. Not really. (laughs) (laughs) No. What about Brussels sprouts? Because I think, you know, at this point, people are like, okay, I like the roasted Brussels sprouts, but there's mm-hmm. got to be other things to do with Brussels sprouts. What are some of your favorite ways to cook them? Brussels sprouts are so versatile because they're wonderful when you just shave them raw. Mm. I have a whole Brussels sprouts chapter. There is a, just in case people don't know, there are 22 chapters in Tender Heart and each is devoted to a vegetable. So there is an actual Brussels sprouts chapter, but there's lots of interesting ways that I've prepared it. One is I've done it as a tempura, so tempura mm. Brussels sprout. And it's served with like a, a light sort of soy dressing, you know, not that different to how you eat regular tempura. But then there's one of my favorites is a sticky gochujang Brussels sprouts oh, where it's yeah. roasted. And then I've applied some of the sticky sauce and it's roasted again. And then when it comes out of the oven, more of a sticky sauce yes, is added please. to it. And then you can just eat that with rice. And like, I really want to kind of convey that to me. I ate rice with every single meal growing up. Mm. Even when I develop recipes for, I don't know, editorial, people will say, oh, but what do you eat this with? And it's like, I often don't even think it's like rice, of yeah. course. 
so like it's just such a great there's so many different types of rice to give you different textures of brown or black or, or just white Austin mixed grains in with it. So that's a real favorite for me. And then, oh gosh, there's so many great Brussels sprouts recipes. There's one where I think this would be a good one to have for lunch. It's a Brussels sprouts instead of egg salad. Mm-hmm. And I remember when the book first came out, someone said to me, what have you got against egg salad? Egg salad is a perfect meal. And I'm like, I love egg salad. I've got nothing against egg salad. But what I was trying to show you is that the flavors and the textures and the preparation of an egg salad can be also applied to Brussels sprouts. Yeah, interesting. Um, and it's very delicious. If you imagine it's like an egg salad with more flavor and more texture. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's interesting because Brussels sprouts have a little bit of that sulfuric, you know, they share that with eggs. And so yes. what a smart idea. I love it. I want to talk also about broccoli because there's one recipe in your book. You should see the amount of tags I have for your book. When I love a book, I go through and tag all the recipes I want to try. But one is your slow roasted broccoli. We, you know, I think a lot of us do broccoli, you know, the roasted, but in this preparation, it's a lot of olive oil, garlic, and it's slow and slow. And I think that's Mm. such an underrated way to cook some of these vegetables. Can you explain how you do that? Yeah. So it's called a long time broccoli. So I too, like you, mainly eat my broccoli quite crisp, charred or roasted, charred in a pan or roasted in, in the oven. But this one, I wanted to kind of bring out the sweeter elements of broccoli. I mean, broccoli or all vegetables really, but broccoli in particular has so many different elements and sweetness is one that I think is always there, but people don't think about. Mm -hmm. If you char a broccoli kind of perfectly, there is a whole lot of sweetness there. So I really wanted to bring that out with a slow cooking in oils, almost like a consi. Mm -hmm. And then when you're kind of gifted with this beautiful, silky, like very green tasting oil too, and you can just, you know, either put that on bread or it's really nice just toss through pasta, which is what Mm. I would do with it. But I really wanted to show different ways, different characteristics of vegetables. And I think the broccoli chapter is a really great example of that because obviously there is the charred broccoli, the roasted broccoli, but there's also a boiled Mm -hmm. recipe for broccoli, which is not how I would normally eat broccoli boiled. But the key in that recipe is actually salting the water Mm -hmm. nicely. Not so much like seawater, but enough that you can really taste the salt, but the water tastes salty. So that, when you put the broccoli in there, and I also put a whole block of tofu in there. Mm. And what that boiling, that salty boil does is it makes the tofu almost draws out the bland water that's in the tofu Mm -hmm. and re-infuses it with this kind of more salty water. Mm. It also makes the tofu really bouncy. It just creates a really different texture. And then with the broccoli, it infuses it with saltiness, which in part also brings out the sweetness of it. And it's just a really lovely, clean dish that shows how versatile broccoli can be. It can be all these things. It can have all these different textures and it's a really everyday vegetable. Yeah. It's to me, broccoli is not seasonal. I will eat it all year round. It's very available all the time from any supermarket 
or any grocery store you're going to walk into, you're going to be able to find broccoli. So I love giving people those simple ways of incorporating vegetables in their everyday life without feeling like, oh, it's not in season. I can't, I'm not allowed to eat it. I Which I think is a lot of how people feel about vegetables sometimes because of the way it's portrayed. In yeah. You know, it's seasonal. You cannot eat a tomato in the winter and you can't eat Brussels sprouts in the summer and all these kind of rules around right. vegetable eating right. that I don't think exists with meat. Well, that's it. And there's also like this moralizing around the choices mm. of what vegetables you buy. And we just need to let all of that go. Like buy the vegetables Absolutely. that you and your family want to eat and that yep. feel good and that are within the budget that you have and let the rest of it go. And I love that you mentioned boiling broccoli because actually boiling broccoli in heavily salted water is what also got my kids to love broccoli because it turns really tender. When they were younger, mm. the charred flavor that we love, you know, as adults, it was too much for them. But you're right yeah. when you boil it and it's tender and it's fully, fully seasoned, there's a sweetness mm. to it. And I would yes. actually make like little, basically like little mini fondues and they get to dip their oh, their broccoli so in like the little yum. cheese sauce and so good. But you're right. There's this, I love that. this underlying sweetness that I think that we don't think mm. of broccoli as being sweet, but it's there. It's definitely there. Yeah, definitely. When it comes to flavor and texture, which we both love so much, do you have mm -hmm. any tips for easy ways that people can you know, say they are just going to throw a tray of squash, potatoes, you name it, into the oven, but yeah. they want to jazz it up. We want to add a little bit more flavor and texture. Are there sauces, toppings, things that you suggest just to bring a little bit more life and complexity to simple roasted, yeah. boiled yeah. vegetables? Definitely. I mean, in terms of roasting, I don't see that there's any point of roasting vegetables without adding some sort of spice to it. Mm. And I have a very, very large spice cabinet, mm -hmm. but you can really start with your basics. So ground cumin or cumin seeds, ground coriander, paprika. I always say like they're my three kind of basics. And with mm. that, you can either use one of them, you can combine them to make a more complex spice mix. But adding that to your vegetables before you roast them, it kind of will change the whole complexity of that vegetable. So that's a free ride for you. Like that's a really easy way of just introducing a different flavor profile. There's a lot. I mean, there's also herbs, like mm -hmm. herbs during the winter just gives, during any time of the year, but particularly during winter, they just add a jolt to the food, you know, like just add like that sort of Oh, that's surprising. You know, that can just be a platter of roasted vegetables. But if you're going to top it with a mountain, like I developed this new recipe that's not anywhere yet, but it was called a whole roasted cauliflower with a mountain of dill. And that's, mm -hmm. that creates a visual. You know, there is a mountain of dill there. And dill is one of those really kind of, you know, it's so much flavor and it's grassy and it makes you just feel alive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's how I kind of feel about yes. herbs. They make food yes. feel alive. And also lots of toppings. Like I always have, sometimes it's pre-roasted nuts, but seeds are really like I'll buy pre-roasted sesame seeds and black sesame seeds, white Great and black, tip. you know, spice tips like the nutty blends like dukkha, like Middle Eastern mm -hmm. dukkha. 
Another fantastic thing to have on hand, Japanese furikake, which is a seaweed with sesame seeds. It's a mix. A lot of those have bonito flakes and fish in them. So be careful if you're buying those. But the basic one is just seaweed and sesame seeds. That is a wonderful thing to add to the top of roasted vegetables to add lots of umami flavors from the seaweed. And, you know, all those little things like we live in this world right now where there are so many great condiments. We live in a lucky time. So we can Mm. just buy all these Mm. things that instantly add texture. Chili oil is obviously something that I love in my last two books. I think I've written like four different chili oil recipes. Because they're all different. I mean, chili oil to me, I don't even think of chili oil as spice. I think of it as flavor. And a good chili oil will give you not just spiciness, Mm -hmm. but it's going to give you umami. It's going to give you texture. The recipes that I write usually have lots of texture in them. Sometimes they have seeds. Sometimes they have nuts. In Tender Heart, there's an umami crisp where I've used porcini mushrooms Mm. to add like, it's the most savory chili oil you're going to get. So think about kind of arming yourself with these things in your everyday pantry Yeah, that is going to turn a tray of roasted vegetables into something quite spectacular. And if I'm going to be honest, in my everyday life, that's kind of how I eat. You know, mm-hmm. I'll roast something and then I'll just add lots of things to it and eat it with, you know, either leaves or, or with rice or whatever. So that's a really just fun. And when you don't want to think, you yeah, know, like you just want to, even if you have it for lunch, just roast up a tray of vegetables and add these these toppings to it. It's just going to make it so interesting and fulfilling. Well, I love that. And it's such great tips. And also for leftovers, I'll often do that, like you mentioned for lunch, yes. to take, you know, if we just had a simple roasted potatoes or broccoli or whatever it was the night before, mm-hmm. and to spice it differently, to add some of these yes. things and to make a grain bowl or rice bowl, or even over, like you said, over greens, but it'll give the vegetables a totally new dimension, a totally new life, yep. which is makes, you know, makes food more exciting. Yeah. I always say that you can have leftover vegetables in the fridge and sometimes they become, yeah, particularly something like a potato you can get, you know, it's not great from the fridge. They just put it in the fry pan mm-hmm. and, you know, like exactly up a bit, creates a different texture, warms up the insides, and then you can add things to it as you're frying. So you can add spice mixes. Yes. And spice blends are another great thing to have lots of. So it's about not us. I don't think we, either of us are asking people to run out and buy everything, but just gradually like collecting one thing here, one thing there that can add lots of interest to your food and lots of flavor. And I love, you know, one of the things that I've talked about and spoken with other guests about is this sense of curiosity and exploration. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, often cooks, like kind of we talked about with like, oh, we can only buy this when it's in season. There's this sense Mm -hmm. of like rule following when it comes to cooking. And because we're given recipes, we're given these frameworks. But I see recipes as just this structure. It's just kind of like, the framework, but you get to fill it in with whatever feels right to you and whatever sounds delicious to you. So don't be afraid to explore. Don't be afraid to experiment. Like if it doesn't turn out, it's okay. It's just food. (laughs) Exactly. I couldn't agree with you more, Nikki. This is absolutely my philosophy in food. And I always say to people, 
if I've given home cooks enough confidence to go and make their own version, mm. that is the greatest compliment to me. I definitely see recipes as a canvas mm-hmm. for people to build on, for you to build your own cuisine. I mean, we all come from different backgrounds. To take an idea that I have given in my books and for people to add their own flavor to it and their own stories, that's the greatest gift for me. So. Oh, I could not agree more. I am so grateful for all of these tips. I am so excited to go make lunch after this conversation. (laughs) I'm hungry too. (laughs) I'm going to wrap things up with one last question. But before I do that, I just want to tell everyone, you know, if you're looking for a holiday gift, Tender Heart is just such a gift. It is such a beautiful book. Buy it for yourself or buy it for a loved one. (laughs) But where else can people find you and find your work? Tender Heart is my fifth cookbook, so Mm, I've got four mm. cookbooks before that, to Asia with Love, Family, Neighborhood, and Community, going in reverse order. They can also find me on Instagram at Hedy McKinnon. I have a weekly newsletter, which I absolutely adore. It's actually my happy place. It's called Two Vegetables with Love. Really, I just basically write about the vegetable dishes that I'm eating that week, and Mm. I create a recipe and... It is really the, one of the most fulfilling things that I've done in the past year. And mm. I'm sure you would agree with your platform too. <laughs> it's wonderful. And I have a website, hedymckinnon.com, and I have recipes on the New York Times NYT cooking app. You can find me everywhere. <laughs> I'll be sure to link to it all. My last question is another question I ask all my guests, and that is, it is your last meal on earth. What would it be? Oh, I love this question. It's so hard to answer. And I probably always answer it differently. But mm-hmm. today I'm going to say ginger fried rice because it is the dish that my mom used to make me when mm-hmm. I would come home in my first days of being a rebel, you know, coming home from drinking or, you know, <laughs> feeling a little ill. And I was thinking, because my mom was super strict, so I would be always scared that she was going to get mad at me. But instead she would say, just she would you, are you feeling sick? I'll go make you some ginger Aww. fried rice. So, and it's also the first meal that she would make me after I had my kids. She would um, bring ginger fried rice to the hospital. So wow. it's a really kind of nostalgic and comforting dish for me. So that would mm, be mine. That's how I'm feeling today. I love it. Thank you so much, Hetty. It has been such a joy. I think everybody listening is going to walk away so inspired to start exploring winter vegetables. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Nikki. Thank you so much for listening. If this work resonates with you in any way, you can support it by leaving a review or comment or sharing it with friends. Also, you can sign up for the newsletter, Mind, Body, Spirit, Food, and by becoming a paid member for just $5 a month, you help fund this entire project. Thank you so much to all of you who are already subscribed, especially to those paid subscribers. This work could not happen without you. I'm Nikki Sizemore, and as always, remember to nourish yourself with intention and love.